0: Uh, Hello, Uh, my name is Lorenzo Van Ness, and I will be having a conversation with uh, Tanya Azapanza Johnson-Walker for the New York City Trans Oral History Project, in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. Uh, This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. Uh, It is uh, April 2nd, uh, 2017, and this is being recorded at Tanya's home. So, uh, Ms. Tanya, um, can you tell me, uh, just your
1: name, your pronoun, and... Tanya, as a pantser Johnson Walker, she and her are my gender
0: pronouns. Great. So can you tell us a little bit about when and where you were born? I was born in Staten Island, New York, May 5th, 1963. Uh, and what what was it like or what do you remember about your childhood and growing up in Staten Island?
1: Well, I didn't actually grow up in Staten Island. Oh. Uh, my parents moved us to to New Jersey. I believe Linden, New Jersey. Uh right from the basically right from the hospital. I lived there for maybe a couple of days in Staten Island, but they moved us to New Jersey.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh so what was it like then
0: growing up in New Jersey?
1: It was very uh it was very racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in South Plainfield, New Jersey. There was a lot of racism and a lot of, uh, you know, it it was just a lot of, uh, well, they had good schools, I would say, at the time, but that's about it. I mean, I remember, uh, when I used to walk across the overpass to get to grant school, because I started out at grant school in 1968, uh... The white kids used to uh, used to roll across the bridge in their cars. Uh, older kids, and I was like five years old, and they would like uh, pull their underpants down and put their behinds to the window and call me a nigger, scream nigger at me as I was on my way to school. So I remember South Plainfield very well. Very prejudiced. Very, very racist. Mm.
0: Did you um, live in, like, a house, or... We lived in a house.
1: We grew up in a house.
0: Okay, and was... Did you have siblings
1: or anything? Yeah, brothers and sisters. I had, like, five other brothers and sisters in the house.
0: Mother, okay. father. Okay. And what was your relationship with all of them?
1: Like... My relationship with all of them? Yeah. Well, we were siblings, you know, and we had to... You know, we managed. We had we went to church every Sunday in Staten Island, New York, where my... Grandfather had a church, uh, a little church in um, one Vanzuza in Staten Island, which is co-named after my grandfather, Bishop Azapanza Johnson Way. Uh, so we went to that church as a kid, I remember. Every weekend from South Plainfield, we'd get on the bridge, the Verrazano Bridge, and we'd go across the bridge to Staten Island and go to church. So I remember that as a child, We, you know. Did you like going to church? No, I didn't like going to church. (laughs) Well, tell me more about that. I didn't like going to church. I really didn't understand what was going on, and I really didn't understand why I had to be there. You know, and why I had to be quiet. You know, I'm a kid. You know, my grandfather had a heavy accent. uh, You know, he was from Africa. Freetown, Sierra Leone. And I couldn't understand what he was saying. You know, he didn't speak clear enough for me. Except the only thing understood he said was no. Everything else was like, I don't know. <laughs> oh. Um, so what were you like as a kid? Uh what was I like as a kid? Pretty effeminate. I like to play with dolls and stuff and you know, uh I was very different, you know, an outcast from the other kids. You know. In my own world you know uh I could probably be a doctor today had someone taken me seriously but they didn't take gay kids seriously when I was growing up
0: mm-hmm.
1: when when I was growing up and you were a gay kid or a trans kid you were going to hell mm-hmm. and that was it and the bible's right and there's no other thinking outside the bible <laughs> so just imagine living in a world like that so yeah.
0: so um how about uh, as a teenager? Were you still an outcast? Or
1: of course, I was an outcast. I had to fight in school. Mm-hmm. You know, the girls didn't want me to play on their side when we played sports and gym, and the boys didn't want me to play on their side when we played sports and gym, and you know, it was just pretty much, um, pretty much. It was pretty much, you know, really screwed up. Mm-hmm. Looking back, you know, at life. Because in 19, I think it was 1976, we moved to North Carolina. And I was in the seventh grade, so the whole family moved down there. I hated the South. I just didn't like it. I didn't really, I wasn't happy with the North, but I wasn't particularly happy with the South. Yeah, so... Yeah, so we moved from, yeah, we moved to North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, And uh, the schools were horrible down there. We were doing algebra in the third grade. When I got down to, in the third grade in South Plainfield, New Jersey, when I got down to Charlotte in the seventh grade, they were still doing basic math in the seventh grade. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, the kids, you know, thought it was okay to call me faggot all the time. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of fights. I got suspended from school a lot. I got in school suspension. I got all kinds of stuff. I'm this bad kid, you know that because, you know, I I wasn't going to take bullying. Mm-hmm. If you're going to bully me, I'm fighting back. You know, and uh, they didn't watch I wasn't allowed to fight back. So, whenever I fought back, I was always the one that got in trouble, mm-hmm. and the other person didn't get in trouble because you're a fag, you're supposed to be the one in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't know I'm not going to believe you. You know, you don't have the right to you don't have the right to, uh, to you know, you don't have the right to fight back. You're supposed to be bullied, mm-hmm. you know. And it was ex- totally acceptable in school. They didn't talk about bullying when I was coming along with these kids like they do with these kids today. They don't talk, they don't know what bullying is today. I know what bullying is. No, I wasn't going home and committing suicide. No, I was kicking ass. You know what I'm saying? I, you know, and that's how I got down.
0: Well, what about after uh, middle school, <laughs> oh. high school? After, sorry. so yeah. So, how was what was your life like as an older kid? You mentioned that you were fighting a lot when you moved down south. I'm yeah, like, seventh grade, I mean, junior high school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about in high but, school? What
1: about in high school? In high school, I was working a lot. I had, you know, a job. You know, I pretty much stayed to myself. I really didn't have any friends from high school. You know, um, except for one, maybe. Maybe one friend. But I pretty much stayed to myself and with my family because I worked two jobs and went to high school. Because my father had like a janitorial service that that I worked uh, after I got off my regular job. And uh, this was before school in the morning. So I worked two jobs and I went to high school.
0: What was your other job that you did?
1: I worked at... Uh, Parties. It was a fast food restaurant. Oh, wow. I did fast food restaurant work.
0: Okay. And were you doing uh, it to like support your family or
1: to support myself, family? And we also he had the little business at night after the store closed that I worked in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would clean the store. We would, scru- we would clean the oven, scrub the floors, scrub mm-hmm. the walls, keep the pla- you know you know make it look brand new for when people came in in the morning. Okay. And we did a, you know, we had to, you know, do that all night, and we'd get done about five o'clock, four or five o'clock in the morning, and then we'd have to get up and be in school by about eight or nine or something.
0: Wow!
1: In class, sitting in the seat, so we didn't get very much sleep. Mm. We were working very hard.
0: So, what about um, after high school then? Um, What was life like, or what did you what did you do after? After
1: high school, well, I well while I was in high school, I joined the military when I was seventeen. I was sworn in. I put my hand up to a picture with Ronald in front of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was president in the 80s, and I um, I was sworn into the United States Army then. And uh, July 7th, 1981, I went into the United States Army. I went to Fort, I went to Fort Belvoir, Virginia, for my basic training in AIT, and uh, after that, I went to Fort Belvoir, Virginia. And then from Fort Belvoir, Virginia, I stayed there like a year two, a year. And I went, after that, I went to uh, Fort Leonard, I mean, went to um, Wild Flick in Germany. Mm-hmm. I went to Wild Flick in Germany after that.
0: Cool. And what did you, what was your rank or what, what did you do? My MOS,
1: my job was, I had a really low job because, you know, the ASVAB test, I really didn't apply myself to the ASVAB test because I, I didn't seriously think they were going to let me in the military. You know, I had been so abused and so harassed and so for being a fag and or girl or whatever and so bad that I didn't think they were going to take me to the military anyway.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so I just circled anything in on a test. Mm-hmm. So I ended up in the uh, combat engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, life expectancy in the combat zone was 10 seconds. It was a really stupid MOS looking back. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, it was alright. Yeah, I'm
0: glad that you exceeded the ten seconds. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're here to tell yeah. us your story. Um, yeah, what was life like in the military? Uh, did you have friends? Or
1: a lot of it was a lot of closet cases. Mm. A lot of marriages of convenience. Mm. There were gay people married to each other. Lesbians married to gay men. Mm. A lot of closet case stuff going on. And if you looked or acted gay or whatever, they would not be your friend. They would not talk to you. They wouldn't have anything to do with you. So I had a lot of. So my friends were usually straight in the military. The gay people and the closet people stayed away from me because they were scared they'd be outed or whatever.
0: Mm.
1: You know, because um, I didn't pass the I didn't pass the the straight test. Mm. <laughs> I didn't pass the straight smell test or whatever test it is. Mm. <laughs> Look, <laughs> so you know, because you know you have to really be macho, you know.
0: <laughs> mm. So would you say that you were still somewhat able to express your gender or no, no
1: you couldn't express my gender at all okay it was too tight you know it was too tight quarters i lived in the barracks mm-hmm. you had to get married in order to move off base mm-hmm. and nobody wanted to marry me i couldn't get in the marriage of convenience so i was too effeminate mm-hmm. and the lesbians were scared that i was going to get them outed you know and so they married masculine gay men and they lived off base in uh, in two bedroom apartments, with and each other. that each lo- each lived with their lover in their rooms. Mm-hmm. So they had lovers, but they they were married, and that's the only way you could move off base. So mm-hmm. they did that. Did
0: you have relationships, or did you meet folks when you were in the army? I met
1: folks. Yeah, I met folks. I met folks in the military. It was a lot, it was a little bit of, uh, some, you know, sexual assaults and shit going on in there, a lot of, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of things going on, a lot of drug use, a lot of things going on in there. Okay. In
0: the military. So how long were you in the military?
1: Oh, I was in there for three years. Mm -hmm. Three, almost four, maybe. Mm
0: -hmm. What, uh, what prompted you to get out of the military or what happened that you left the military?
1: what happened I just wanted to well I really wanted to go I was really done with it I was done I could never be a straight person I thought I was going to change and I never changed mm. I never changed who I was so you thought the
0: military would like help you
1: I thought it would make me straight and all that stuff because I believed in that straight lie that, uh, that I mean there's no that you know that there's no such thing mm. as you know you know gay because they didn't have trans back then so they called us all gays queers whatever
0: you know, they didn't have
1: trans. Trans is new. You know, it's a new term, you know, to me. And a lot of older gay people uh, don't really understand that term. They don't, really, they don't really dig it. Because we were all drag queens back in the days. And uh, a lot of them don't accept the word trans. They don't accept that. Because this is new. It's like forced upon, you know, people who saw life different back in the days. So we all had fun together you know it seems like you know as soon as we became trans that it changed the community a lot mm-hmm. you know now we have to politically accept this new group of people into our into our you know group you know and it was like you know i mean younger kids are more accepting and more acceptable but the older the older people are very they're very resistant to trans people the older the old guard i'll call them yeah so what did you do after the army then after the Army, uh, my dad uh, had me driving a tractor trailer mm-hmm. on his job uh, for Winn-Dixie. And um, I got tired of that. And I said, I'm, I just said, one day I just said, I'm, look, I'm, I'm getting the hell out of here. I don't like the South. I'm just, I'm leaving. I had about maybe three or $400 in my pocket. I had a car, I had an apartment fully furnished, night stuff, my clothes, everything, and I dashed. Where you go? With a suitcase. I came to New York, and I lived with my I lived with my at my aunt's house for a little while. Why New York? Huh?
0: Why? Why? This is where York? I was
1: born at, and this that, is where I was from. I was from this part of the country, and I wanted to go back. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt better up here. And New York was more acceptable. You know, accepting of people who were different. You know? So, uh, I wanted to come here. I mean, in the South, they weren't really accepting, you know. And it was too... Everything was the Bible down there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, what came first? The the baby or the Bible? The baby came first, right? Because somebody had to be born in order to create a Bible. So, the baby came first, so... You know, how are you going to tell me how to live my life? You know. I mean, that's playing with my intelligence. Totally. Telling me I have to live a certain way and I have to do things a certain way. Because of a book tells you to. Yeah, a book tells me, you know, a book can tell me that, you know, you know, that misgendering and all this stuff is wrong and harassment's wrong, but people still do it. You know? They still do it, you know?
0: So, you know. um, What was it like when you came to New York and you were living with your aunt, you said?
1: Yeah. I had to keep my... I started my transitioning. So I had to keep my clothes in a bag. And I had to to get dressed on the bus to go hang out with my friends. You know, because my aunt was just... Oh, she just was not having it. Just don't let anybody know. Keep it in the closet. Don't let anybody know. They're already calling you all these names. Don't let anybody know, but they already knew. And I didn't care if they knew or not. By that time, I didn't care. I was 23 years old. 31 years ago when I came up to New York. 23. This is 1986. I came back up to New York in 1986. You know, so, and I was 23, I was young, 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 very young. And I had seen a lot, you know, being in the world, traveling, and all that stuff. You know, because I wanted to travel as well. You know, I didn't want to flip burgers the rest of my life and all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. You know, so, finally, after I, you know, I began to live my truth more and more and more like in the 1990s, like the end of the, like 1989, 90, uh, when I started to live my truth, I, um, I, uh, I wanted to work, I wanted to find a job, I wanted to work, but there was no work, so, you know, I was forced into survival sex work you know because after i left my aunt's house i had to pay rent i had to buy clothes i had to buy hormones i had to buy this buy that insurance didn't pay for anything in those days they didn't pay for anything there was no transgender kids at school there was none of this what all the stuff going on there was no uh there was no transgender celebrities there was no uh there was no um trans elite there was no trans anything it was all uh it was a very uh, it was a very sad life it's a lot of homelessness a lot of people dying from aids a lot of you know trans and gay people dying from aids people you see one week the next week they were gone they were dead it was like you know like aids was the body snatcher it snatched a lot of bodies out of here quickly and uh, these kids today don't realize the seriousness of aids but they need to watch a documentary I'm in from 19 from the 1994-95 called "Mirror Mirror," where uh, this girl, uh, trans woman, um, Cotswella Cosmetic, is dying from AIDS, and see how what AIDS wasting looks like, what it, this stuff looks like. I mean, um, it's these systems of oppression that are causing the rate of AIDS to go up in the people in the communities of color. Today, I mean, you can't even go to the doctor's office without being harassed, you're not a woman, uh, you're a man, you're blah, 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 I don't have to call you she, blah, 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 I don't have to respect your gender identity, what gender identity, I call, what I, I call it what I see, and this is by licensed social workers talking to me like this. So, with people like that, um, trans people specifically, black trans women, trans women of color, are going to resist health care like they did even back in the days. Uh, because um, they're not going to be respected and they're going to be they're going to be uh, injured, you know. They, you, you can even be sexually assaulted going to the doctor or being in a hospital setting. You know, so the systems are the reason for the uh, for the for the for the rate of AIDS in the people of color communities. It's the systems that keep us down and oppress us and keep us from growing, you know, in society. Like, to even get a college degree, you got to pay a whole bunch of money to get a college degree. You know, it's unaffordable. School is unaffordable. Medical care is unaffordable. Everything's unaffordable to you. And how do they expect you to thrive in a world like that? And then, you know, we got these big show-offs up here in Washington in the White House... They already got billions and trillions of dollars. I don't know why people vote for people like this. These people do not care about us. And, um... They're the reason for our problems. Just like I learned it when I was going to college in the 90s before I got ran off the, the College of Staten Island campus. Uh, I learned in social... I was studying to be a social worker. And... Um, I think it was one of the uh, psychologists. I don't know if it was Emile Durkheim or one of those sociologists or whatever said. Uh, I don't know if it was Jacob Rees. One of the sociologists said that uh, rich people are the reason for poor people's problems. And I learned that in sociology, and it's the truth, you know, because um, like when I was coming along in, in the 80s, we had regonomics. Trickle-down economics. Nothing trickled down. I saw, when I came to New York, it was homeless hotel hell. Everybody, just about everybody was homeless. You see see that movie, Paris is Burning. All those kids, mostly all those kids that you saw walking up and down the runway in Paris is Burning were homeless. They were living in the salt mines in the village. They got trophies. They didn't have house keys. Mm. Those were homeless kids. But nobody really talks about that. But I saw those kids, and I knew them, we were all homeless together at one point. So you know, you know, because of who we are and what we are, and systems and you know colon- and, and, and the colonized minds of our parents and our, 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 uh, our relatives, you know, they're so colonized and so conservative that they can't see the forest for the trees. You know, so, uh, you know, I'm all about, you know, decolonization of the mind, the heart, soul, mind, spirit, and um, trying to get back to, you know, our, our indigenous ways. You know, what were we like before colonization? How did we think? How did we eat? How did we love? How did we live? You know, those questions need to be answered. Because... Right now, we see everything from a a white man's point of view. Patriarchal white male point of view. Everything. Beauty. Our sense of beauty. Our sense of uh, color. Uh, everything. Eye color. Hair color. Hair texture. This, that. As through the eyes of a white cis male. Everything you see on TV is through the eyes of a white cis male. You know, and... Who doesn't recognize his privilege? And so, at, in the say, and in, in the meanwhile, we all suffer as a result. And
0: when did you start coming to these, like, uh, to this, like, knowledge and this, like, awareness of, you know, colonization and all these other issues and systems that are broken? Like, what, how did you come to? I know you said you were involved in activism in so in social work school. But how, yeah, how did you come into the world? You're a big activist, right? So um, how did you come into the world of
1: activism? I always wanted to be an activist. I've been an activist all my life. I was an activist by myself because I resisted. I resisted those systems that told me that I couldn't be, that I wasn't a woman, I couldn't be a woman, that I couldn't be trans, I couldn't be this, I couldn't do that, I couldn't get a job, I couldn't do that. I broke down all that, you know? Um, I was really... Forced into activism because um, I was the president of the LGBT or LGB organization on the College of Staten Island mm-hmm. because nobody else would take the job. Everybody was in the closet. They were afraid. They were afraid they'd be killed. They were, they, everybody wasn't out to their parents. They were afraid they were going to cut off their school money. Uh, it, was, it was like that. And, and it was, you know, um, and it was a very conservative school. You know and uh there was uh somebody was coming to the school that was uh representing uh the borough president godby Molinari. but I can't remember who it was and um so we organized and said that we were gonna we were gonna make some noise and let them know that this person was not welcomed on the campus and that we didn't that the um that the words of the borough president, were unacceptable. We're going to let them know. We're going to make signs. We're going to get out there. Only about three or four or five of us got out there because no we had no police protection. We could have been shot right on campus. People would have turned their backs and just said, we didn't see anything. That's how conservative this college is and was, or was at the time. So we went out there. We organized. And when the person came, you know, they put up the little barricade. And we stood behind the barricade. And we held up signs and we chanted and everything when the person was walking by. And Staten in Advance was there. And you know, uh, it was with Garvey Molinari's remarks that Judge Karen Burstein, a judge, could could not be Attorney General of New York State because she was an out lesbian. Mm-hmm. That was the whole reason, you know, thing around the protest and. There was a whole lot of homophobic things, you know, homophobia was was ripe at that, that time in the air. And, you know, uh, gay issues, lesbian issues were becoming more and more and more conscious at that time, you know, uh, in conservative circles. You know, they were rejecting anything LG, lesbian, gay at that time, anything. There was no trans, there was no bi, but it was just LG, lesbian, gay. So, uh, you know, I processed and I held up a sign that said, you know, I made a sign that says, gays and lesb- lesbians live in your borough too, shame on you, which made the front page of the damn Staten Island advance. After that, as a result of that, I was run off the college campus by, by carloads of students that were black, white. I think black and white and Spanish, they were mixed. They called me all kinds of names. They told me they threatened my life and told me that I cannot come back to Staten Island College. When I told the administration about it, they told me they couldn't do nothing anything. The police said they couldn't do anything. You know, we had no rights. This is before you know gender protections in New York City and blah blah blah. So, you know, I've been resisting. You know, I've been resisting, fighting. For lesbians, gays, fighting, you know, trans, fighting, you know, so that really steered me into real serious activism in 1994 was uh, the Staten Island College, you know, it was just too conservative. I mean, nobody was out. I mean, I used to hold class, I used to hold meetings, lesbian, gay meetings And people used to come to the room, I mean, would, you know, say like back, and they'd be inside that room right there. And you could see, I'd keep the door open so people could come in. And they would peek to see who was in the room and dash past the door real quick so you couldn't see who they were. That's how scary it was to be out at that time. Even after gay rights movement and the Stonewall riots and all that shit, it was still... It was still... People were still not out about being lesbian and gay. It was, they were still in the closet. And some people are still in the closet to this day. They're not out. You know, it's gay, lesbian, trans, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Because of the same stigma and the same, you know, same thing that's going on, you know. You know, the same, th- same reasons. And uh,
0: what was the... Uh... What was it like in New York to be gay? I mean, aside from on on college campus, apparently it seemed re- like it was very conservative there. What about in the rest of the city? Did you come to Manhattan, or did you? How did you? Where did you go to hang out? Um, you know, to be with folks. I
1: used to I used to go to I used to go to that to the center, the old center, the center the, on Thirteenth Street before they remodeled it. Mm-hmm. I used to go there and hang out sometimes, and I used to hang out on the I used to go to the to the stroll. I mean, to well, to the Paradise Garage, and I used to hang out at, uh, uh, sometimes I went to um, the Tunnel, I went to the uh, Palladium, I used to hang out at the clubs and stuff a lot. I started hanging out at the clubs. And uh, I went to the Eagle's Nest on the West Side Highway, Sneakers, all those bars that used to be up and down uh, Christopher Street that they shut down. I don't know, that's not the village anymore, I don't know what that place is called, but I remember the village. When the village, back in the days in 1986, I used to hang out in Keller Bar, they used to be right there near the highway around the corner, on to the left when you get down to the west side highway, till you get down to the last corner. And it would be right there, or it was right there on the corner, I used to go to Keller bar. so it was this little bar that used to get packed with all these black gays and stuff. I used to hang out there. You know, and it was just all black people. And you couldn't even get to the bathroom. They had pool, big pool table in the middle of the room. And it was just jam-packed. And it would be crowded all on the sidewalk. And, you know, black people hung out there. And the black people also hung out at, and the people of color hung out at Two Potatoes. Uh, they got rid of clothes. All those bars down. All those historical sparks shut us down. Erased us from history again. Um, and, uh... You know, it's just its just been horrible. You know, the same systems keep erasing us and destroying us over and over and over again. You know, I, I used to, uh, in New York uh, back in the days, you know, I noticed a lot of, uh, it was still, it, you know, there's a lot of hatred, a lot of violence, a lot of, homo- I mean, transphobia, a lot of homophobia and stuff going on. But uh, people mainly got along and had fun together more. People had fun together more. You know, when they went to the clubs and everything like that, you didn't care who was what. You just went and, you know, you had fun. You know, people were less judgmental around that at that time. Hmm. And people dressed better in those days.
0: How do people dress? Give me some examples.
1: <laughs> How do people dress? They, dressed, they just dressed better, you know the girls wore wrap skirts with dance skins crisscross in the back and, uh, and they used to wear candies. What's, what's that? Candies were like a slip-on shoe with a little heel. With a little heel, they were like brownish and they had a little heel of was like a little platform in the top in the front. And they used to wear the skirts that flared out like the 50s sometimes with the collar up and stuff like that and their hair in the bun, you know, the hair in the bun and all that. I used to love those styles back then. Oh. Uh, and everybody was doing the New York Hustle and all that. Oh, those are such fabulous times. I miss those days. I mean, but everybody was poor. AIDS was killing everybody. People there was so much homelessness. All the youth were homeless. They had no programs. They had no Ollie Fournay. They had none of the street works. They didn't have anything for homeless kids hardly. I think they had um Harvey Milk School, I think, was around. Or HMI. Hedrick Martin Institute was starting to come around in the 90s. But in the 80s, none of that stuff was there that I recall. So what did young folks do generally? Like, the kids, kids, What like the that? kids did was hang out on the piers, mm-hmm. prostituting. Yeah. You didn't get food stamps and stuff. You had to prostitute to eat. You had to do survival sex work. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you were 10. I saw those little kids out there prostituting. Mm-hmm. And I saw men dating them knowing they were dating children. And knew it. And paid it no mind. Act like it was normal. So, you know, I've seen, I've seen, you know, stuff going on right here in this country. You know. You know, we're always looking to third world, you know, so-called third world countries or developing countries for stuff like that. But no, that, this occurs here in this country. Child sex work and everything is right here. (laughs) It's right here. Right in front of our face. It's just, it's not somewhere in some distant country or far land. It's right here. It's ignored, but it's coming on. Kids are doing survival sex work. Because they're gay, trans, or whatever, they're being thrown into the streets, put into foster care, thrown out of foster care systems. They have to, you know, they're raped raped and abused in there, so they run away to the streets. You know, and then they have to survive on the streets. And survival on the streets entails... Um survival sex work. That's just comes with the program. And you also get abused on the streets. You get robbed, you get beat up, you know, you end up abusing drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same story. Over and over again, the same vicious cycle, same story, over and over and over again. Just a whirlwind of just pain, agony stress, you know, because the system's designed to keep people down. Systems that need to change. That we need to change as a people. And so, um,
0: I guess, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about what was, like, community like in, uh, in, the, in the 80s and the 90s? Like, what, what did that look like for you? As opposed to
1: what it looks like now, maybe. Community, community would be uh, one of the girls, one a trans girl that had an apartment, mm-hmm. and she would let like five other trans girls stay with her. Mm-hmm. That's community, If <laughs> they were homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, that was community. Uh, uh, or she would have a dinner, and she would invite girls over to eat, or something like that. You know, basically, Sharon and Karen. You see a girl on the streets; she's cracked out. She doesn't have any money. she just got beat up by the trick, her eyes swollen, you know she's got cut wounds on her you um give her give her five dollars, take her out to dinner, you know buy her a dress, buy her some heels, give her a wig. that's community. you know tell her where the soup kitchen is, where she could get some food or something like that, or where she could get a coat. You know, that's community. The girls, you know, helping other girls in the streets and other people. You know, them, they, you know, knowing where the resources are and leading other community members to those resources that existed mm-hmm. was community. But did you have anyone
0: like that in your life? Or were you that person for
1: other folks at all? Ever? Yeah. Sometimes I was. Sometimes I was, yes. I was. I had uh, different kinds of people, lesbians, gays... Trans people living in my apartment in Staten Island. I got, had finally gotten an apartment in Staten Island.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I had, yeah, I had different people living in my apartment. Mm-hmm. They could come to my house to get food, to eat, change clothes, take a bath, rest for a couple of days before they go back to the streets mm-hmm. to live again. We had to look out for each other. We didn't have anything. I didn't have... And I had to, I had to do sex work to feed people. To clothe people, mm-hmm. to house people, to pay light bills, mm-hmm. to pay you know rent and all that, I had to do sex work to take care of people. I didn't have any funding from anywhere, no foundations, no there was no foundations there was no no grassroots fundraising. there was none of this stuff, mm-hmm. well we did do grassroots fundraising a little. We had to fundraise to get <laughs> to get things, but you know. There was no... You know, nobody. we had no help. And today we have organizations that claim that they're helping people of color, but they're really not. They're just taking all the money for themselves. You know, but... We won't mention those organizations.
0: Um... Do you remember... When do you feel like you were most able to, like, express your identity? Or, like, when did you come into... Miss Tanya, like when, when?
1: <laughs> well, I got my. Well, I was actually, when I was on Staten Island, mm-hmm. I ran into this girl named Melon. Now, she called herself Madonna. Okay. And she was a. Uh, uh, she. She looked like it, a flamboyant gay boy. She had the boy. They gave her boy, say, a boy's haircut, and she had this little thing, but she was, you know, she loved gender, not She had this. Little, her head took on like this with this little ponytail on top. And she was dressed, you know, a little bit up top like Madonna, you know, because she loved Madonna. So she called herself Madonna uh, at that time. And uh, she was homeless at the ferry terminal. Tunisia was homeless. There was a few other people that were homeless, you know, at the ferry terminal in which I ended up homeless at the ferry terminal with all of them because I wanted to keep living my truth. So that's basically when I really started, you know, being me, was when I ended up homeless at the ferry terminal. I left my aunt's house, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I stayed with Tunisia and them in an abandoned building Mm -hmm. uh, outside the ferry terminal. They used to have empty train cars, and, you know, we could stay in, and they had abandoned buildings with no electricity, no windows, no nothing. In the wintertime, below zero weather, we'd mm-hmm. stay in there because um, we didn't want to go to the shelter. Because in the shelter at that time, you couldn't uh, you couldn't wear your clothes. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, "Oh, you have to, this is a men's shelter. You have to wear men's clothes. You have to wear men's underwear. You have to wear men's this. You have to be a, this is a men's shelter. You have to be a man. You cannot be a woman here." And so we lived in abandoned buildings. And um, Anyway, I used to run into Melanie and then when I was on my way into the city looking for jobs and this, that, and the other, you know, coming from my aunt's house because I'd be looking for jobs all the time. This is, you know, and uh, so, you know, I ended up hanging out with them and staying with them one night and stuff. And then um, they said, you know what? You know, the way these real feminine hairstyles. And they used to be like, you know what? I was like, what? They said, you look like a Tanya. I said, really? They said, yeah, you look like a Tanya. I said, wow. And Tanya became my name. I was named by homeless, trans, and gender non people. people. Wow. And when was that? And this was in, this was in 1990, 89, 90. Wow. That's great. That's how I got my name, Tanya. I didn't make the name myself. I was named.
0: But it, did it feel right? I don't know.
1: It felt right. <laughs> it felt right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was named. Yeah, but um, in those days, so you know, we had the basic, we we had to survive on our own. It was do or die. You know, it was do or die, and a lot of people died. Mm-hmm. There was no HIV medication. There was no nothing back in those days. They had nothing really. You know, and and the, then they, when they had AZT, AZT was killing people. Mm-hmm. So people couldn't take that. You know, they couldn't take you know AZT was too strong. It Was killing people. So, you know, um, at that time, so people were dropping like flies. Young, beautiful, talented artists. I mean, people were artists, singers, uh, fashion designers, uh, uh, hairstylists, you know, makeup artists. You know, all these talented dancers, uh, talented, beautiful people of color and people just... Erased from planet Earth, the snap of a finger. Are there any beautiful, fans? talented, and there was no organization for them to go to to express their talents? Nothing, nowhere, nobody cared about them, especially the people of color. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. You just die on the streets. They don't care. They didn't care. Nobody cared. You just had to keep going through the motion of doing what you needed to do to survive. And that's it, basically that. Everybody was survival. Nobody was thriving. Everybody was just surviving. There was a girl every now and then that met a rich doctor, and she went to live with him in his home in um, New Jersey somewhere, his mansion or whatever. But very few. Very few uh, you know, got a chance to live that life. Most of us, you know, continue to struggle, you know, and the first job that I got as a trans woman was at, uh, was a friend of mine told me one time, I forgot his name, I forgot his name, John, I don't know if his name was John, I forgot his name, it might have been John, he told me anyway, it's this black guy, real dark skin, you know, because he was dark skin because of, um, uh, I think, uh, dialysis or something. Uh, he was telling me that they had, because I, I said, damn, I would love to work. We were sitting there having cocktails and drinking in this room one night. I said, damn, I would love to have a job. I'm tired of this shit. I can't do sex work. I hate it. I hate it. And so he said, uh, oh, well, you know, over at Housing Works, they hire girls like you. I said, really? I said, yeah, he said, yeah they do. Um, you know what, when my case manager comes, I'm going to get the information from her, and I'm going to give it to you. And so I went to Housing Works. And um, I uh, found out, you know, that they had a job training program. And I said, I got to get into this job training program. And it's supposed to be a client, you know, it's supposed to be there like for three months. And I said, no, I was there for like a month and a half. And I was in the job training program. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And Sheila Spivey, you know, let me, you know, let me in into housing works. She was there to greet me, you know, and talk to me and everything. And so I got in there like a month and a half into the job training program. And I was in the job training program for a year, which consisted of, this is after college, which consisted of, uh, after I got thrown out of Staten Island College, which consisted of, uh, You know, language arts, mathematics, different things like that, uh, critical thinking. We did a lot of different things, you know, in job training program. We had a weaving project where we, we created a rug. We, we developed a rug with a loom, mm-hmm. a real rug. And, uh, you know, we, we were learning to work together and learn to grow together, you know, in a weaving project, you know. Even if we didn't like each other. If two people didn't like each other, those that was the person you had to work with. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So it was really a strict, rigorous course. You know, but I'm really grateful for it for Charles King, uh, Charles King, and and uh, what's his name, Keith Kyler. They were the bosses when I was there. They were the big bosses. They were the co-founders and the bosses of Housing Works when I got there. And um, I don't. I still have respect for Charles today. Keith died a few years ago, and you know I had a—it was a good experience working there. You know the people at Housing Works at the time were—you know—the cultural competence is something you have to constantly work on. It's not just oh, uh, it's just a training you run to one day and, and you, oh now you're uh, you're culturally competent. Cultural competence comes in when it's ongoing. And at Housing Works, at that time, uh, there was no cultural competence. There was no cultural competency training, nothing. So people were, like, forced to work with trans people all of a sudden. I have to call a person, she or he, that wasn't assigned that uh, gender at birth. And uh, a lot of people didn't want to do that. And they still don't want to do that. You know, because they feel like they have the right to self determine our gender for us. You know, so you know, it was kinda hard working at Housing Works and people getting the gender pronouns right and stuff like that. Because they didn't they were they didn't like in the class like say, Oh, what would you like what is your gender pronoun? They didn't do that. We had to keep fighting with the people to call them the gender pronoun that we were. We had to keep fighting with them. It's you know, it's not chosen. I don't have a chosen pronoun. It's my pronoun. To you, did you choose to be called a he or she? You know, to assist person? You know, ask that question. Okay, then neither did I. I happen to be I like, you know, I happen to be, you know, I'm binary. Uh some people are non binary, but I'm I'm kind of binary and I prefer shit. Sometimes you can mix it the hell up if you want to. <laughs> you know. Depending on what mood I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, because that's what makes life exciting. You know, good, cool.
0: You know? So, uh, did you, after the job training program, did you get hired at Housing
1: Works? Yes, after a year, I got hired. I wanted to be a residential Mm aide, but they said, no, you got a little bit too much brains for that. You know, I really thought I was always dumb. You know, I always thought I was dumb, I was retarded, I was going to be no good, I was just going to hell.
0: Because
1: that's what I was always told. You know, they said, no, you have a little bit too much brains, we're going to move you over here, you're going to be a case manager. I said, no! No, you know, you're going to work in case management, and you're going to be a CFW, which is a community follow-up worker.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So I worked under the case manager. And, uh, you know, doing home visits... Uh, Working with uh, single adults and families, HIV, AIDS, substance abuse, or substance use. Uh, And uh, we had to document everything. Basically, you know, home visits, uh, we had to coordinate services in the client's life, whether it be legal, education, uh, substance use, uh, child welfare issues. I had to work with all those issues with my clients I had to do escorts I had to escort trans women to appointments and to you know to HASA uh, to to the doctor's office I had to case conference with their doctors their case managers their caseworkers, all this stuff you wouldn't believe the stuff I had to do nobody would believe it for the for the little money that I was making it was a lot of work it was real social work you know I'm sitting there with the client and um the, so the you know, and you know I'm working for housing works, I got my badge on, and uh I'm in the office with the worker, the worker continuously misgendering my client, mm-hmm. and um, so uh, you know, I'm trying to tell her you know that isn't polite to you know misgender a client uh she prefers to be called she blah blah blah, and she of course to call Gina not John Doe, mm-hmm. okay. So let's keep it clear right now. Uh Jenna she, she likes to be called she, or her, or whatever. And uh, the worker would be like, look, I don't know who you are, or why you coming here with your friend, thinking y'all are going to get over on me, and having me calling you um, by uh, something that you're not. You know, um, I'm going to call you, you know, I'm going to call you what I see. And I have the right to do that. And I'm like, you know, so I'm sitting there, we're not getting anything done because we're sitting there arguing. Not arguing, but discussing gender and different things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. So we're not getting any work done. The client's case is closed. The client has no food stamps, no cash, no assistance. Mm-hmm. You know, plus the client has a warrant. Mm-hmm. That, she has to, that she's scared, afraid to clear up because she's being harassed and abused by the police. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a very difficult job. It was very difficult. Nobody nobody really knows the work that I had to do in that position. You know, I had to go to, you know, some of the girls, you know, and and I would have to, after that, um, you know, I had a family. I, had a, I worked with a family who had incest. The brother, the older brother was sleeping with the younger sister, underage sister, and... um So we had to work at ACS and we had to, you know, we had to figure out uh, what to do with the brother, how to keep the brother away from the sister. So they kept the brother out of the house for like a couple of months. They couldn't hold him back any longer. So they had to bring the brother back into the home and for the abuse to continue. And that's child welfare. That's how it goes. That's how it goes, you know, especially when there's incest in the family, you know, so I see how the system works. See, the systems keep us down because they're systems we didn't create and we have no input into. We can't rely on people who aren't transgender, who've never been harassed, who've never uh, been misgendered, or, or who have never walked in our shoes to make laws and rules and things for us. Without our input, we must be, trans people, we must be at that table. Trans men, trans women, non-binary people, gender non-conforming, we need to be at the table when laws are made for and about us. You know, because we're not fully protected. You know, if I can go in a hospital and the social worker sit there and tell me what she just did at this hospital, uh, I don't have to call you anything. I call you what I see and 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 rock like you know and with the attitude and eye rolling and uh, you know things like that and she's at my bedside i just had lung cancer surgery they just took another piece of my lung out this is my second time with cancer i'm in pain i'm on painkillers i'm going through it and this lady visits me every day in my room and harasses me calling me out of my gender um, I don't know, maybe she wanted to learn. That's why she kept coming around me. But, I mean, but she was harassing me. You know, there was no cultural competence there. I mean, you know, one lady kept, kept coming in my room to check my catheter, one nurse. She kept looking under the sheets. And, she, you know, kept touching me under the sheets. One lady was touching me through the sheets she put all the medical supplies on my groin. And then she would be messing with the, you know, picking up the medical supplies, touching my genitals as, you know, she's taking stuff off of my genitals. You know, and stuff like that, and looking into my eyes. And then she started following me around. All, everywhere I went in the hospital, she kept following me around, smiling at me. You know, so trans people are, not, are sexually assaulted, harassed, everything in these uh, medical facilities, misgendered. And, and these people are defiant. So we're not covered in medical facilities. No wonder so many trans women die from AIDS. No wonder why they don't seek care. You know, no matter why, no wonder why they are not adherent to their medical appointments because because of cultural incompetence and the conservative and, and, and how conservative our uh, hospitals are and medical facilities. They're too conservative. And they really... They haven't changed at all. They haven't changed at all. They, they didn't... They didn't... They didn't change... With everyone else. They're stuck in... They're stuck in Rome somewhere. <laughs> you know? They're not... Uh, they're not... Uh, they're not up with the times. At all. I mean, because... Um, misgendering is violence. It's violence. If somebody if somebody out you in a store or somewhere, you could be attacked. A trans person could be attacked right now, today, in front of cameras, police, everything, just for being just for being who you are, and being outed in a store, in a in a in a, in, a, um, in accommodations, in a restaurant, in facility, anywhere. Our life's in jeopardy. You know, we have to always be ready to fight, fight back, fight, you know, for survival. And when we win, we're not supposed to fight back. When we win, they they lock trans people up. You know, when we decide to fight back, you know, we're not allowed like cis people to uh, defend ourselves in society. We when we fight back, they usually give a trans person or LGBT person they give you a lot of time. And they start making up stories that you did this and you did that. You you know. Like they did those lesbians in, um, over down there in the village. When they fought back against this guy. Mm-hmm. They ended up doing all this prison time. You know, that documentary. Uh, they made recently. I forgot what it's called. The Jersey Four? Yeah, the Jersey Four. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, just like that. Our lives are in danger. And we have to be ready to fight back. You know, we can't let these people you know, get the best of us. You know. You know, so right now I'm recovering from lung cancer surgery for the second time. I'm on, you know, a few painkillers and stuff and uh I'm sick of painkillers. <laughs> but you know, um I have to do what I have to do right now. Till you know, till I can till I heal. I'm really sore really, really, really sore, but, you know, I'm going to have to walk around today and get some air, but, um, you know, a lot of trans people deal with cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no studies made on, you know, what all these medications are doing to our bodies or how does it affect, how does cancer and hormones, you know, affect the body at the same time. Does hormones cause cancer or what? What is going on here? Tell us, you know, tell me what's going on. You know, why you know, why is there so much cancer in the LGBT community? You know. You know, because first I was an LGBT activist and then, then I became a trans activist. But I'm still a trans... I'm still an LGBT activist. I'm still... I got the right to carry that rainbow flag around. And I'll show it off, too. You know what I'm saying? I'll wave it in their face. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so... uh and I like the, you know, the trans flag is a little... It's alright, but I'll show the trans flag off as well. But, you know, it is what it is. I didn't invent either one of them, but... I guess, you know, I'll just have to carry them. You know.
0: Um, could you talk a little bit more about some of the some of like the healthcare things that you've overcome. I know you've been dealing with lung cancer and other stuff for a while. Well, like, and you mentioned some of the like you know the healthcare system is stuck in like Rome <laughs> and, like,
1: yeah.
0: What in have ancient you... Rome. Rome yeah. Um, how I, I mean how have you struggled through all of this um, and how do you like keep yourself strong and like keep fighting and
1: How do I keep myself strong and keep fighting? because i've been fighting for so long i've been fighting since i was a little kid mm. i've been resisting mm. you know that i'm 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 not going i'm not going to be a, you know a cis person i'm not going to i'm not going to be the, i'm not going to get married and have a wife and kids i'm not that's not going to happen in my life that's resisting you know i'm going to be i'm going to be me and i'm going to resist people telling me that i couldn't be and shouldn't exist and shouldn't be me you know it's been I've been resisting, and that kind of gives me and keeps me gives me the strength you know because you know they want you to kill yourself, they don't care, you know they want you to mess up and uh they, they they you know they'd love to see you in jail, they'd love to see you on drugs, they'd love to see you uh out of it, you know and basically destroy yourself, you know, and I know that's what they want, and that's what I refuse to do. Because I know that's what they want. You know, they want to live good lives and they want you to live in the gutter. Mm. You, they, they feel like you shouldn't exist because of who and what you are because I'm a trans woman, a black trans woman. You know, you know, many black trans women are killed each day, you know, by um, by mainly black men, unfortunately, who probably belong to churches that say that it's okay to do that. You know, that uh, homophobia, I mean, that, that homosexuality, and that lesbianism, transgenderism, all that stuff, is it's, it's illegal. It's against the Bible. It's against the law. And then we got 100 websites out there against trans people, which is radicalizing uh, some of these fruitcakes that sit behind these computer screens and look at this garbage and these garbage websites like Breitbart, And now we got the guy from Breitbart, Steve Bannon, serving right in the White House of a racist, homophobic, transphobic website. And they're creating the violence around us. They manufacture hate and manufacture violence. Now he's in the White House next to this guy they call Trump. President Trump. And people couldn't see this was gonna, this is the Trump could have got in. I can't believe it. And none of these people up here care about us, they do not care about us. They will never let me walk into Key Largo. They'll make sure I'll never have enough money at one time to be able to afford the fees, which is $200,000 at Key Largo. And then you're gonna let this guy get in the White House. They're totally against us. Why do the poor people think that because a guy is racist, like they are, like some of them are, is gonna really, uh, it's gonna really help them? He's out to help them. He's only out to help himself. Why do they think he's gonna help them? I don't know. You tried to act. You know, they played the role. They tried to act like they were one of these poor people in the Midwest that worked in or in West Virginia in the coal mine. Yeah, I'm just like you. On the microphone, I'm just like you. Yes, I believe that, th- that we're going to start that cold again. You know, I'm just like you. Here it is. I got, I got, I got thousands of hotels all over the world. Billions of dollars stashed in secret accounts. I got, uh, you know, I have uh, all these court cases. You know, and um, still I'm president. You know, but I'm going to help you because I got to be a billionaire helping you. You know, so. You know, it's, you know, it's these systems and things that, you know, in this last election that's, you know, keeping people down. And it's going to even push them further down. We have, we're going to lose a lot under this administration.
0: What are some of the things that you're doing currently and that you've done um, to, you know, fight for trans rights, to fight for, uh, to advocate for folks, for the different communities you've talked about? Like maybe
1: NITAG and
0: other stuff?
1: Well, I'm a co-founder of NITAG. Kiara St. James, myself, and uh, Armani Taylor created uh, NITAG. And NITAG, in 2013, I had lung cancer Mm -hmm. the first time. And so we had a hard time getting NITAG off the ground. So Kiara finally took her money and got the 501c3 for NITAG. And what is NITAG? NITAG is New York Transgender Advocacy Group. I created the name, uh, and uh, I think uh, Armani screamed out the acronym. <laughs> so that's how we got uh, NYTAG, so, you know. And, uh, you know, we're just meeting one day. We're going into groups at different organizations and stuff, and uh, we just thought about it one day. We said, damn, all we get is a metro card and a meal. That's all we're getting. And we started looking around like, but what else is there? We need more. We need something. We need to be able to do things for ourselves. We're too, you know, we're too, you know, we're too, um, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I don't know if the word is smart or too, we're too knowledgeable to be just having a metric on a meal. I mean, and we really need to help our community. Our community is suffering. Everybody's not going to be an activist. Everybody's not going to uh, go to, you know, attend groups and try to uh, organize together. You know, so we need to work for the people who can't organize or who can't be there for whatever reason. Whether that, you know, be sex work, whether they're just mental illness, whatever. We're going to be there for them and we have to find a way to show up and be present for, um, for our community. And so we uh, created Night You know, we had several meetings and several things. And I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker in 2013. So I got pushed out of Night Tag. And um, I just got pulled back into Night uh, recently in 2017 uh, after the 501C3. And after they got some funding. They have funding now. You know, so, um, you know, and I stand behind Kara St. James, or beside her, and with her, or whatever, you know, and, you know, the goals and dreams of Nite.
0: What other stuff are you involved with, um, in the community?
1: I'm, I'm on a board member of the Audrey Large Project, mm-hmm. um, and the Audrey Law Project is good, is a very good organization, that's very supportive to the LGBT, POC, people of color communities here in New York City. Um, they do a lot of organizing around issues uh, that affect uh, the community. They did a lot of stuff for trans issues with healthcare and different things in coordination with other organizations um, and did a lot of work, you know, to try to uh, get our community healthy again. You know, psychologically healthy, and, and and at least you know, give us you know, let us have more rights. You know, give us more rights, and also to uh, you know, to try to help us you know to learn how to work together, especially uh, the LGBT community, the T, the LGBs, to work with the T's. They you know, they definitely have good trainings at Audrey at Audrey Lord, you know, on how to work together in the same room you know, uh, to try to see the intersectionality of our issues mm-hmm. and, you know, how to move forward together, you know. So uh, basically, you know, Wardry Lloyd Project is very good in that area. And they do a lot of security for a lot of the organizations and, you know, a lot of protesting, a lot of activism, you know, helping to solve the issues and keep the keep our issues in the forefront, you know. Not a community organizer.
0: Um, Who would you say um, has been a really influential person for you in your life? Or, Or influential people, I guess, too?
1: That's a hard question. Who's been influential to me? There was one girl lady, Ar- Arlene Hoffman, was kind of influ- influential to me. Arlene Hoffman, she used to work at Housing Works. She was like a no, nobody, no name. She was a social worker, licensed social worker that nobody ever talks about anymore. And she loved the community. She loved the girls. She did a lot of work for Housing Works uh, with the day treatment and everything. And uh, she, I, looked, I looked up to her a lot. She was a black trans woman, you know, with a college degree. Struggled from, you know, crawling on gravel, struggling, no money, no nothing, no anything. And she got a degree, sick with AIDS. She got her degree. You know, her degrees. And uh she worked for a few years and then she caught she, you know, I guess her cancer came back or something, and she ended up in the hospital and she died. She died. She worked till the day she died, almost. You know, she, had, she was in the hospital like a week or two, and then she just passed. She couldn't breathe. She died right up here in, uh, I think it was Columbia, this hospital up here. Behind us, she died. She was pretty much influential. People like, you know, Sylvia Rivera, you know, Marsha P. Johnson, um... You know women Audrey Lord, you know, judge Burstein, because judge Karen Burstein because she fought you know she fought she she was gonna break the glass ceiling and she was gonna take it to the top judge burst Karen Burstein. Um you know, I kinda like some of the philosophies of Malcolm X and stuff like that. I think my grandfather was. A little influential. You, Can you know, tell us to me? more about him. He was the first, he was from Freetown, Sierra Leone. He was the first Black Fire Chaplain in New York City. He, uh, he was good friends with the Rockefellers and um, David Rockefeller and um, Nelson Rockefeller and President Truman. And we have photos of him with them. Um, he uh, helped to get President Truman reelected here in Harlem uh, he presented him with the Franklin Delano Roosevelt award after a speech uh, in front of 75,000 people here in Harlem in 19, I think it was 1952 or well, 54 or 52 I'm not sure Um, it was in Jet Magazine, um, uh, my grandfather was always getting invitations to the White House, spent a lot of time in Waldorf Astoria and all these different places here in New York City back then, when black people couldn't even get in places like that. So, you know, and my grandfather did work on civil rights. So, my grandfather was a civil rights leader before Martin Luther King. You know he wasn't recognized, because he was an African, and he wasn't a citizen. Uh, so, uh, you know, I look up to my grandfather, because, you know, and he wasn't a citizen. So you know him for all immigrants. <laughs> I fight for all immigrants. I don't give a doggone. I mean, what's, do- what's documented? What's undocumented? Give the people papers. You know, and and get rid of the word undocumented. I mean, um, the people that are in control should look at their own history and see how they took this country from the natives who are already here. You know what I'm saying? I mean, these immigrants are not coming to take the country. They just want a better life for their children because in their countries, their lives were destroyed by globalism. And they can't even live or eat off the land or grow food on the land and sell it and make a living, you know, anymore. So they come here for a better life for their children and their families, basically. You know, the better education, better nutrition, you know, better everything. You know, better medical care, you know. And um, I believe that all immigrants belong belong in America. I believe they belong here. Contrary to whatever laws they have, I think that we should, break, we should get rid of the immigration laws that we currently have and create ones that bring more immigrants into the country and make it safe for them and where they can become stable, educated, educate their children, you know, and be able to reap the benefits of this land.
0: Did you um, have a close relationship with your grandfather? I know you talked a I, lot about his
1: achievements. Yeah, but I didn't know about this, his achievements until I got older. Okay, but when you were younger, did you meet? Did you like work, yeah, I, spend a lot of time with him? Or? I couldn't spend a lot of time. He was too busy. Mm. He was busy all around. He used to wear this uh, his uh, priest outfits, you know, priest uniforms with a white collar, and he'd be so standing there. And I remember the smell of his perfume, his cologne, or whatever. And he had this big gold ring on and. I remember him standing there, you know, and I would see him at the top of the stairs and we'd be downstairs making noise cause we were little kids. So, you know, basically he died in 1972. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fire department was at the, at his funeral because he worked, he was a fire chaplain in New York City. So the fire, you know, the, you know, the fire department was at his funeral and stuff. So I remember as a kid, we couldn't even, you couldn't even, it was standing room only in the church mm-hmm. because the fire department had to get in. There's fire trucks all around the whole church. You know, it was really crowded. And I didn't know everybody who was there. I don't know if the Rockefellers came or not, but there was a lot of police. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of police and a lot of fire department, a lot of people that looked weird, you know, with suits on and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I
0: guess if you wanted folks to hear one thing from you, like, what would it be? Like, what, what, what do people need to know to know who was?
1: The people need to know that I've never that I've always fought for my community, mm-hmm. and I've never stopped fighting for my community, and, and you know, and I'll continue fighting for my community, you know, even even for those who cannot fight for themselves. You know, I'm going to speak up, and I'm going to speak out, you know, on the issues, and that um, you know, that I love my community, and I care about them, and that um, I think that all. I want, I want, I think that all, right now, specifically, that all LGBT immigrants should be, should, should, should have asylum, automatic asylum, and they should be able to remain in this country until they die. And they, they deserve healthcare, they deserve education, they deserve housing, they deserve everything that this country has to offer. And I will continue fighting for that. Um, I
0: guess, is there anything else that you'd want to add about your history or anything that, you know, your life that you'd want us to know?
1: Yeah, but, yeah. well, I've been fighting, you know, I've been fighting for probably, I've been fighting for really, I would say 25 years. But I've been resisting all my life to what people told me I should be, who I should be. But, um... Well, something else about me. I, well, I like the New York hustle. I like to dance. I like house music. I like stuff like that. I like ball. I like Vogue, and I like to watch people Vogue and all that stuff. I love all that.
0: Were you ever part of the ballroom
1: scene? No, it was never part of the ballroom scene. I only went to one ball <laughs> in the nineties, mm-hmm. and night. it was cute and everything. But I never got a chance to go to any other ones. Mm-hmm. But I, I like, I like the, I like the ballroom scene in the nineties. The girls were so pretty. And the, you know, and I love the I love the balls. I love to see people get dressed up and live a dream. You know, even though most of the people at them balls at the balls were homeless, and some of them still are homeless. So you know, nothing's really changed. You know, nothing's really changed a whole lot. The kids, the children, are still homeless, still struggling, still surviving, and that I feel like we need to really start changing these systems that oppress us. And we need to really pay attention to what's going on and stay alert. You know, we have a lot to lose as a community. And, um, the people that are in power right now are the ones that can can really make life miserable for us. And, um, You know, we have to keep fighting and keep uh, resisting. That's great.
0: All right, well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me, and I hope folks who listen are excited to hear your story. You have lived a long, exciting life. Uh, Thank you.